Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to conservation and stewardship of the natural world. I'm Dylan Banyasco. I'm a landscape architect, outdoorsman, and conservationist. I'm learning from exceptional people who are working to improve our relationship with land in one way or another. Subscribe on your preferred podcast app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Helena Norberg-Hodge is a linguist, author, and filmmaker. She is the founder and director of the international nonprofit organization Local Futures, a pioneer of the new economy movement, and the convener of World Localization Day. She is the author of several books, including Ancient Futures, which you'll hear all about in this conversation. Together with a film of the same title, Ancient Futures has been translated into more than 40 languages and sold half a million copies. Her work, spanning almost half a century, has received the support of a wide range of international figures, including the likes of Jane Goodall and the Dalai Lama. Starting in 1975, Helena worked in the Himalayan region on the Tibetan Plateau with the people of Ladakh to find ways of enabling their culture to meet the modern world without sacrificing social and ecological values. She was the first Westerner in modern times to become fluent in the language. She's helped to initiate localization movements on every continent, particularly in South Korea and Japan, and co-founded both the International Forum on Globalization and the Global Ecovillage Network. Needless to say, I was really honored to speak with Helena after reading her first book recently. I'm certainly not an expert in economics, but her message resonates with me, and I think you'll see why. She advocates for localized alternatives to the global economy, particularly involving the creation of robust local food systems and democratic structures that can effectively resist authoritarianism. We talked all about her work in Ladakh and the effects of global economic pressure on that place, as well as her other writings and films and the work she does with Local Futures. You can find all that content at localfutures.org. You can find helpful tools and tips to shrink your own footprint and support localization movements. And Helena and Local Futures have a podcast as well, featuring interviews with some of the leading thinkers in economics and agriculture. This episode is supported by Magic Mind, a blend of matcha, adaptogens, nootropics, and honey that helps give you a sustained, calm focus without the jitters and crash that can come from coffee. I've been taking it for a couple of weeks now, and it's really helping me kind of stay productive longer throughout the day and reducing my dependency on coffee. Pick up some at magicmind.co slash landethic for 40% off a subscription or 20% off a one-time order for the next 10 days with the code LANDETHIC20. All caps, all one word, LANDETHIC20. Lastly, I would really love to hear what you think about the podcast. If you could do me the quick favor of opening up your Apple Podcast app on your phone or online, search for Land Ethic Podcast and leave a review, it would really help the show. Thanks. Now on to my conversation with Helena. I'm sitting down virtually across the world with Helena Norberg-Hodge, author of Ancient Futures and many other books. Hi, Helena. Hi. Nice to meet you virtually. Yeah, nice to meet you too. We were just talking before we started recording. You are in Byron Bay? Yep, Byron Bay, Australia. Which I said I can't point to it on a map. But uh, as of last week, there is a place that I can now point to on a map, which is in the, uh, in the Himalayas on the Tibetan Plateau, a little place that you spent some time in a long time ago and wrote a book that um, I found really inspiring. So just to tee it up, I've been sort of singing the praises of localism and, oh, we need to decentralize and this and that. And I realized that I didn't really know what I was talking about. So I started looking for content on the subject and immediately came across your work um, entitled Local Futures and Ancient Futures. And so I read your first book, Ancient Futures, just last week. And that leads us to where we are now. Um, Could you talk to me a little bit about that time in your life, going to this place that you had probably never heard of, most people have never heard of, and um, what you were doing. You weren't writing the book yet, right? What were you doing there? No, I was, I had been, um, I'd become a linguist because I learned languages very easily. 
And my interest had really been in understanding other cultures, other worldviews, and and then I'd ended up in linguistics. And I was living in Paris, working as a linguist, and I was invited to go out as part of a film team to this place that I hadn't heard of, and most people still haven't heard of. It's it's Ladakh, and it used to be called Little Tibet because it's the westernmost part of Tibet, high up on the Tibetan plateau. Looks just like Tibet, you know. It's a yeah. people live at about twelve thousand feet, and the architecture is the same. And the Dalai Lama is the spiritual head, and they speak an ancient dialect of Tibetan. So I went there thinking I'd be there for six weeks, but I ended up staying well over a forty-year period. I spent much of every year there, and wow. my organis my organization is still active there. And I fell just completely in love with the people, with the place, and had my eyes open to the way that the global economic system essentially cannot respect diversity, cannot respect essentially life itself. It's 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 become so top heavy, so distant from the realities on the ground that it's become a very, very dangerous machine. And I became aware of that already 45 years ago. And after I had been in Ladakh for 16 years, it was, I actually, half of every year for 16 years, I then wrote that book, Ancient Futures, where I was pleading for a shift in direction in the economy and arguing that we needed urgently international collaboration, international information exchange to make clear to people both on the so-called undeveloped side of the world and the developed side of the world that this type of development wasn't working for either one, yeah. either of us, any of us. You laid it out beautifully in the book and it's a, there's, there aren't a lot of examples in modern day where we can look at what happens to uh, a so-called undeveloped society that rapidly becomes, again, so-called modernized. Um, and and it was really interesting to see the effects. I have to ask you were you were going to learn this language in six weeks? No, actually, <laughs> no. I was actually invited out as part of a film team because they thought that I could pick up a bit of the language to facilitate the filmmaking. And I um, I did pick up a lot of it. And then at first I stayed on to do a PhD on the language. But very quickly I became much more interested in essentially in trying to encourage a different route of development. It, it reads like almost like a anthropological ethnography. Was that part of your background and, and part of your linguistics training? How did you how did you develop this skill set? Well, I many people think of me as an anthropologist, but actually, sadly, in the modern era, most anthropologists do not speak the language fluently, do not live with people for years, do not become part of that culture. So I think what I'm offering is quite unique in that I, as a Westerner, learned to speak the language fluently, lived with the people, and experienced myself in that culture, in that environment, in a place where I was walking most of the time. I was using my body. I wasn't sitting all day. I was um, also operating, I realize now, at a slower pace. I was living in a culture where things were not so stressed, <laughs> time pressured, and competitive. There were many, many other aspects to it, but I, I did find that I was a lot happier when I was out there than I was when I returned to the Western world. And in fact, from almost day one, one of my one of my themes became happiness. And yeah. it was something that was, uh, when I would return to the West and talk about happiness, people had become so jaded that they actually didn't like the word. They were associating it with these sort of happy, clappy commercials for Coca-Cola on television. And so people were, were sort of inclined to instead maybe want to talk about joy. and But, but happiness was sort of 
I mean, it was often questioned also, you know, how do you know that people were happy? And I, I now, you know, what my answer for a long time had been, if you're honest, you know the difference between when you feel happy and when you don't feel happy. So even though it's very, very difficult to quantify, very difficult to measure, we all know that there's a huge difference between being happy and unhappy. And as it turns out, the indicators for unhappiness are pretty clear, including suicide, which was something that was was virtually unknown, well, it was something that might have happened in a generation in Ladakh. But now it's at least one a month, and it's mainly young people. And that says a lot about, about this type of economic progress or modernity. So how did it come to be that this place was sort of cordoned off from um, the outside global economy um, and that you were one of the first Westerners really to spend that much time there? Yeah, it was cordoned off because in the era from about the 1940s, which is the era after the Second World War when modernity really took off and when the global economy was sort of forcing itself into every corner of the world, uh, I would say, you know, after the Second World War, a big leap in that direction. And then in the 80s, there was a new impulse for what's called globalization, where there was a, another huge pressure to mm. to introduce essentially global corporate activity into every part of the world. In Ladakh or West Tibet, this area belonged politically to India, and it had since the 1840s. And... In the era of modernity, China was coming into central Tibet. So India put army on all the borders. On the other side, they had Pakistan with also a disputed border. So this is a very sensitive strategic zone for India. And for that reason, they cordoned it off. No one was allowed to go there. When they opened it up in the mid-70s, it was actually to place it on the map as Indian territory. Um, because, yeah, for a number of reasons. Folks, I, like all of you, am balancing a lot. Between work, parenting, podcasting, I struggle to maintain focus throughout the week and kind of stay on top of it all. So I just started taking something called Magic Mind. It's honestly helping me a lot. It's a blend of nootropics, adaptogens, and matcha that gives you kind of a sustained, calm focus. I was getting a little out of control with the coffee, and just kind of feeling dehydrated and fatigued by the end of the week. So with Magic Mind, I've been able to go from three cups of coffee to one in the morning, and I can just sit and focus for longer. I feel good. The matcha has compounds called catechins that slow your body's ability to absorb caffeine, so it's kind of like an extended release version of coffee. The L-theanine reduces stress, so you avoid the cortisol dump and subsequent crash. Other ingredients like lion's mane, ashwagandha, and cordyceps mushrooms reduce inflammation and support immunity and energy levels. It's good stuff with real healthy ingredients. I started to notice a difference uh, and reduced dependence on coffee after taking it for about a week regularly. I ramped up from half a bottle to a full bottle each morning and uh, started really noticing a difference. So I think for long-term benefits of focus, reduced stress and inflammation, a subscription is probably the way to go. It comes in a cool little carton with individual servings. I keep it in the fridge, and I just take one after breakfast with coffee and just get shit done. I'm on it right now. Pick up some at magicmind.co slash landethic for 40% off a subscription or 20% off a one-time order for the next 10 days with the code LANDETHIC20. All caps, all one word, LANDETHIC20. So in your time there, you're able to witness daily life, you're seeing how these people sustain themselves off the land, relying on barley, animal husbandry, and sort of this simple life where there's not a whole lot of conflict over property rights and trade. People are happy, as you describe it, and you, you get to see weddings and healing ceremonies. You know, they, they really seem to accept you as a member of the community. How, how would you say, one thing you didn't write about is how they viewed you and your role in the community. Do you have any insight on what that might have been? Well, yes, I was actually recently working on my memoir. And then when um, 
when someone was interviewing me, um, I became aware of how incredibly lucky I was because I was I was just greeted with open arms and just such love and appreciation because people hadn't experienced an outsider who had learned their difficult language. So I became famous throughout the whole region and the region is about the size of Austria. It's quite big, but it was essentially wow. small villages, some slightly bigger than others, but about a hundred villages and small towns in this region. And I became famous across the entire region. So wherever I would go, they say, oh, Helena Dolma, Helena Dolma. That was my uh, Ladakhi or Tibetan name. And they would just come rushing out and greet me. And we're just uh, the children all, you know, very, yeah, enchanted to hear me speak. Everyone sort of so <laughs> appreciative of every word I spoke. So it was, it was a culture that was so open-armed and, and open because they hadn't been faced with colonial pressures like so many native people around the world. So they were protected by their high mountains in the earlier era. And maybe, maybe yeah. by the strong culture too, because missionaries had been there, but they had only managed to convert a few orphans. So the majority was still Buddhist, there were also Muslims living there who had moved in into that area about 500 years ago. But um, anyway, I was uh, greeted with incredible warmth and even love. And so it was, uh, it was also a difficult language. So it's, it was unusual that someone would learn it. And I used to be told that I spoke it better than they did. And yeah, just very appreciated. Well, you talk about their hospitality as the stuff of legend, so I'm not surprised that you were welcomed. But um, yeah, I guess that kind of stuck out to me. Is like, what was were they seeing you as like a researcher or one of them? Or that's interesting. It, so the twist is, unfortunately, that this region is opened up for um, development and for tourism, and you start to see the erosion of. The fabric of this society essentially due to global economic pressures some of the example like i can give some examples of the you know the mud brick now being replaced with concrete and steel the yaks being replaced with cattle the the local crops being replaced it's one thing at a time but i guess from your perspective was it um was it sort of a slow chipping away or was it like a tidal wave of globalism well as uh, when you were there, it felt more like a tidal wave because it was opened up simultaneously to development and tourism. So tourism start, tourists started coming in, and even even in very very small numbers, they had quite a big impact. And it was the simultaneous thing of schooling, of changes in architecture, of radio and advertising and all of it pointing in the same direction and the direction was you're no good the way you are and you are as essentially the whole system destroyed self-reliance so created this dependence on imports and in doing that the schooling and the psychological pressures were pushing people away from the land into the city so it's really important that we understand this link between urbanization and globalization. Mm. And I do want to just stress that this is particularly important today because worldwide, the pressure from this global system is continuing and it's everywhere encouraging a destruction of land-based activity. That means forestry, farming, and fishing that is about providing for local needs. And it is about driving 99.999% of people away from any of those land-based activities, replacing them yeah. with energy, minerals, technology, and it's called efficient when it's actually creating pollution, destroying the land, the water, the air, and creating mass unemployment. And the mass unemployment in the cities is combined with a breakdown of community and a breakdown of self-respect. So it's it's a disaster 
psychologically, socially, and environmentally. Yeah, you know, here in the U.S., you hear about farmers growing up and moving away. That these generational farms are no longer uh, able to continue. You know, passing it down to the family. Maybe they have to sell out because of I don't know upward social comparison. The kids grow up and say now they have now they they can see how people live in the big city and they think they want that what what is it what's causing this now again i think that's why i had such a, a a lesson in trying to well in being forced to see how systemic it is so it's multiple factors simultaneously and they've been operating across the world for hundreds of years but as i said particularly since the mid 80s in a more aggravated way and in a in a more extreme and forceful way so young people who see that farming and land-based activity is undervalued it's we've we've been sort of pushed into a culture where we valued left brain intellectual activity and essentially around the whole world the hope is that the children will become doctors engineers or maybe lawyers but other than that, they're nothing. You know, even something like mm-hmm. engineers, a bit lower status, but certainly farming and land-based work, hand work as carpenters or other skilled work, completely undervalued. Now it's undervalued in terms of esteem, but it's also undervalued economically. So you're talking about a double whammy of you know lack of respect and lack of remuneration and i i like to highlight the fact that really what's happened with the modern economy is that the two most important things we do as human beings in which have to do with how we rear our children and how we rear or grow our food those two activities are absolutely vital for our overall well-being for our not just our happiness, but for our physical well-being. And both of those activities have been turned into shadow work, undervalued, under undermined. And so uh, as we now start looking at what future we want to, which path into the future we want to support, well, let's say, let's put it another way, I'm hoping to encourage people to think more clearly about what which path they want to support because there are two paths being forged right now. One of them top down, the other one bottom up. The path that's being pushed comes from global corporations and banks, pressuring governments who in turn are pressuring their people to move away from nature even further into even bigger AI dominated cities and all, if you've stepped back to study it, if you look at Beijing and what's happened in China in the last 20, 30 years, if you look, really step back and look at the bigger picture and you can look at almost any part of the world, including my native country of Sweden, you will see growing dissatisfaction, growing pollution, loss of any faith in government. Democracy now seems like a, a distant mirage for most people so this path is quite evil as a system i don't think the people are evil but as a system it's quite evil on the other side what i'm seeing and what i've helped to support is what i'm calling localization which is this sort of opposite direction and that's a bottom-up movement forged by people at the local level and you can find it all over the world, and you will see demonstrations of ways in which this can help to heal people and ecosystems. So it's an important it's an important distinction, and it's important to be informed about both of these parts. Yeah, and I also like the distinction that people aren't evil. There, there's no sinister cabal of of global elites that are pushing this necessarily. Maybe there is, but. It's really more that um, this is a global system of commerce that is really leading to environmental degradation, loss of community. It, it's not, you know, I think people want to point the finger and find someone to blame. It's uh, it's systemic. It's systemic, yes. And the good thing about that, too, is that, well, 
one of the really good things about this too, if we understand it better, is that we can also move away from a lot of the self-blame that is now, you know, sort of uh, a bit of an epidemic in the Western world where the average Westerner is being made to feel guilty for not being willing to deal with climate change, not being willing to stop driving their cars and they're being blamed for climate change. This is a very false analysis, particularly as it turns into um, this argument that, well, human beings don't learn from information, we're just all so greedy, we want to keep on this track. It's a completely false analysis. When you actually look at what's happening, you will find that people really do want change, they even are willing to make sacrifice, but what's happening is that we're not being told about the real cause of the increase in emissions. We're not hearing any discussion of the emissions created by a corporate global system that is unbelievably wasteful of energy, unbelievably polluting, and Absolutely. all the time destroying secure livelihoods. Absolutely. Uh, you talk about some solutions in the book that I read, and since then I know you've developed a whole lot of, of work with uh, local futures, but um, one of the terms you use, I think it was anti-development or de-development. Counter-development. Thank you, counter-development, um, which to me, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounded like you were saying in the, in the example of Ladakh, why don't we try to get ahead of this as, as people who have climbed up to the top of the mountain and we don't like the view, reach down and say to developing communities, hey, here's where we went wrong. Here's how you can develop a little more sustainably and avoid the pitfalls that we've fallen into. Is that counter-development? Well, for me, it was quite important to stress that I was sharing information about how Westerners who had gone to the top of the mountain and realized how empty it was that they were starting to make changes in their lives. They were starting things like eco-villages. They were starting local food initiatives. They actually were going to a lot of trouble to build houses out of natural materials, to use natural fiber for their clothing, to have natural food unpolluted by chemicals. And they were even willing to pay more for that because they realized how important it was for their own health and for the health of the land. So this is more about providing information about the realities in the West and we provided reality tours for people also to come to the West to experience for themselves and to meet with people there. At the same time, we also did reality tours the other way around for Westerners to go out and to there to realize they'd been fed a lie about people who don't have anything. People are so poor, they don't have anything. And they didn't realize that they do actually have vastly more time than we do, particularly time for things like dancing and singing and celebrating, more time to give birth in a natural way, to build houses in a natural way, to grow food in a natural way, and more time to care for babies and to connect the old and the young. So there was a, an incredible wealth there that I maintain that we actually long for. And from the what I call ancient futures micro-trends that I see in the West, you can see how people actually are longing to get back on track. Closer connection with nature, closer connection means also trying to do things in ways that, that don't harm nature, trying also to, not just trying, but there's an everyday we're more waking up to how damaging it is to eat highly processed food, how healthy it is to try to eat a traditional natural diet. So all the time we're waking up more to something that's taking us back on track towards more natural ways of doing things, closer connection to nature, and very, very importantly, more community, more interpersonal connection. And that in turn allows for um, essentially an inner reconnection for a more relaxed and deep appreciation of life, including appreciation of ourselves. It's a, it's a very, um, it's spiritual and it's a psychological healing at the same time.
but but you see, above all, what I was so aware of was that I would I always used to say that if I had only the information that Ladakis had, I would do exactly what they were doing. Right. Because they the information they got in no way it's exactly like buying uh, an item in the shop that has absolutely no description of what's in that thing. It might taste good, look good, but actually it turns out to be toxic. So they were getting all these glamorized, romanticized images of modern urban consumer culture, romanticized images of these happy, happy nuclear families, uh, and nothing that said, well, actually some of the side effects are, or some of the costs of this are, that these people don't have time, they work much harder than you do, there's no connection between the old and the young, and that means people are afraid of growing old, they're very, very afraid of dying. They're basically afraid of life because they've been so disconnected from life. So these, um, it was basically providing fuller information. And I would argue that today there is nothing that would be more beneficial in terms of solving our deep spiritual, psychological, social, ecological, and economic crises than better information from a holistic, honest perspective. And we're not getting that in the media and we're not getting it in academia. Yeah, that's hard to come by. Yeah. I, uh, it, it was really interesting. I think one of the things that stuck out was they weren't poor in their community. They had a, you know, until, until this globalization pressure came in, poverty is relative. They realized, oh, in this currency... Um, you know, society now we, well, I guess they were using currency, right? But now they've got an issue. Not much, not mm. much. So the, you see, again, because in their case, their basic needs, so that's, you know, food, clothing, housing, water, medicine, law, all of that they were getting without any money. So the money to the extent that it existed was for luxuries, for goods from further away. Yeah, and it early on it was mainly in the form of jewelry. It was stones like turquoises and and gold and silver and pearls that came from far away, and that was the type of of wealth. But they they had started using money, but as I say, it's not for essential needs. And then they realize the illusion is that these technological innovations are going to lead to more comfort, but they realize that actually they end up working a whole lot more even with all this modern convenience how does that happen yeah no i mean this is unfortunately is something that in the west we also haven't realized you know a friend of mine juliet shore she wrote a book in the early 90s called the overworked american and that was documenting how between the 60s and the 90s the average American was working one month more per year. And another friend of mine, another economist whom I work closely with was someone named Richard Douthwaite, an English economist. And he wrote a book called The Growth Illusion. And there he was spelling out how in the UK, again, he was looking at it in money terms and showing how when GDP went up, buying power for the average citizen had been going down in the same period. So the truth is that growth, as it's been constructed and promoted by both political left and right, has actually been making the majority of people poorer. What it's done is to enrich fewer and fewer people, and it's been those that are globally active, and particularly in the form of global multinational corporations. And this now it's reaching proportions where I'm just asking myself, you know, how long is it going to take till people say, what is going on? How can it be that the middle class is now struggling to just pay for the energy bills for a bit of heating and that it's been, you know, and that the younger generation now don't have a chance of buying a home? People are seeing that and they're seeing that there are these few billionaires earning, you know, a billion a year and prancing around the global stage showing off their wealth and you know infatuated with technology and of course it's the high tech world where all the money is being 
accumulated. So I do, I do really hope we'll see a major wake up where people say, if we care about the future for our children, if we care about health, if we care about some kind of justice, environmental protection, we need to look at the economy. We need to look at what's going on in the economy to create this system. And I think particularly when people then say simultaneously emissions are going up and maybe more dramatic is extinction is increasing, extinction of species. Uh, and once the penny drops, that this destruction of the natural world is completely linked to the destruction of our lives, I think we'll have a very powerful movement for change. You talk about the the technological, the, the fetishization of, of technological inf uh, innovation, and this is something that I've harped on a little bit as well, that I really don't understand the futurists and the globalists that are pushing, well, if we can just you know, if we can just reach that next tech, we can solve our problems. But there do exist technological innovations that can really obviously help us. You and I are speaking right now from opposite sides of the globe, literally talking about localism. That irony is not lost on me. I listened to your book using Audible, an, an Amazon company. You know, so there are benefits to this, the, the information exchange, the the idea exchange that can happen due to this and the, these people, but um, I, you know, at what cost? Well, I think this is probably one of the most important discussions today is to look, as I say, at the economy and to look at the role of technology in that. And that means that we need to be looking at these vast techno systems, particularly the information technologies, the internet, the mobile phone, and their role in creating an economic system that is widening the gap between rich and poor astronomically and increasing environmental breakdown astronomically. And I do want to add, you know, really hope that people will listen to this. In every single country I know of, now including Ladakh and my native country of Sweden, the toll on young people and their mental health and physical well-being is dramatic now. It's And it's increasing in every single country. I know of no exception. And I'm talking about China. I'm talking about Sweden. I'm talking about Bhutan, Ladakh. Yeah. So please, we really need to step back and look at these multiple crises. And the, the good news is that they are all connected. And they're connected to the economy and they're connected to the role of technology in that. Now, if it were possible, what we would be looking at would be a movement that says, let's use these tools for communication, but not for economic extraction. And if we were to do that, we'd be able to use these tools to create that absolutely necessary international collaboration, information exchange, because we're not being told the whole story of what's going on on the other side of the world. We need the truth about that. We need the bigger picture to know also that if we now move into 5G and more and faster technology, we are talking about mining on a scale that we have never seen before. We're talking about more human and environmental destruction than we've ever seen before. So we need to be clear. We don't want to escalate this mass extraction of resources and energy use. But where we are today, let's use these tools for communication and let's try to, you know, let's try to build up a consensus that we want to halt the economic use of them. We want to halt not just the economic use in the sense that in the sense that we're talking about beginning to regulate global banks and corporations. We're talking about no longer subsidizing them. And we're talking about shifting subsidies to instead support the small and the local. If subsidies were shifted in that way, Overnight, almost, we would see dramatic benefits. 
in the long run, there would hopefully be no need for subsidies, but we're talking now about heavy subsidies that often are not called subsidies because they involve our governments investing in infrastructure to support global activity, global trade, global communication, mm. while squeezing and over-regulating every one of us as individuals and every place-based or localized business, everything from the corner bakery to the national industry, any activity that's at the within the national remit is being heavily taxed and squeezed with ever more bureaucratic regulation. And the bureaucracy is becoming more and more insane, more and more uh, heavy, Yeah. while at the global level, it's freedom. That's what free trade means, moving around, no taxes, no regulations. So we have a completely unfair playing field, which is decimating and destroying the real economy. And let's remember the real economy is the living earth and of course the real people. Wow. You know, I really like hearing about the common sense solutions, like the subsidy swaps you talk about, because I, I'm, I try not to be pessimistic, but part of me goes with the, you know, halting of, of technology, for example, it's like, we can't, we can't count on human nature to do anything different than it's done up to this point. Um, Pandora's box is open, you know, the, the forbidden fruit's been tasted, whatever. And so I really like hearing about those, those practical solutions. And I also think it's about reclaiming power, um, in the United States, for example, reclaiming power from the federal government, taking it back at a state and local level. Governments are gluttonous. They're going to continue to grow, continue to, you know, support their, their own growth and, uh, they're never going to shrink unless forced to do so. And so, I don't know, that's that's also something that I'm becoming more interested in. Well, I think I would really urge you to spend a little bit of time to look at the bigger picture because what I see happening is that the, the policies whereby governments have been subsidizing and supporting global trade for a very long time, it's from the beginning of the modern economy. And the, actually, when I say the beginning of the modern economy, I mean the, the foundation of this economic system, which started with slavery and closures and, colon, and later colonialism. Now, that system has always been destroying self-reliance of regions, of countries. So that economy has always been destroying self-reliance. In other words, what the principle of comparative advantage encouraged was don't grow a bunch of things that you might need in your region. No, you focus on what you're good at. You specialize for export. So inherent in that economic formula has been the imposition of monoculture and monocultural production on a larger and larger scale, whether in farming and forestry or fishery is a disaster. It's anti-life. Oh, yeah. It actually can't tolerate life. So we're talking about a system that really from the outset was destructive, but in the early stages, it did bring certain benefits to certain people, but it was always generating more wealth and power for people at the top. What's really important today is not to look just at the role of government, but to see that governments, yes, have become very destructive because they've been following the marching orders of global banks and corporations. In 2008, when we had an exposure of the damage that this financial casino was creating in people's lives, it was so clear to everyone that we should regulate this financial speculation. How can we allow this casino with people just playing with the lives of people they've never met, they've never seen. Yeah. They're not bad people. They're, you know, young men having a good time making lots of money. But the actual impact on the ground, this is where I talk about our arms have grown so long, we can't see what our hands are doing. When that happens, we become incapable of empathy, incapable of genuinely ethical choices. 
So the shortening of distances is fundamental. And yes, right now you think the government is getting bloated, but actually vis-a-vis -vis the, the sort of interlinked empire of speculation, particularly the high-tech business world, but also the giants that are buying up the seeds, that are controlling the food supply, the game of giants, that's where the real power is, and they are wealthier than our governments. So vis-a-vis -vis those corporations, governments are actually getting poorer and poorer, and they're going with their begging bowls and saying, can we please do public-private partnership, a PPP, because as I say, relative to them, they're poorer. We, the majority, need to have clarity about what's actually going on, I think, to 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 then start to discuss what kind of solutions are there. But I do want to say that once we have clarity, one of the most important things we can do is to get organized at the local level. And that's where we're also making quite a lot of traction to make real change. Even under these conditions, there is a local food movement growing worldwide where people come together, shorten the distances between producers and consumers, create alliances and allegiances and structures that can be almost impervious to the manipulation from above. In all of this, your work, at least in what I've read so far, kind of comes back to that human scale of, you know, a lot of this wouldn't happen if, if I were looking this person in the eye right now and we could resolve this. Exactly, exactly. And it's so beautiful to see that when we come together to be dependent on Michael who owns a shop or on, on Mary who does the, some of the sewing or on, you know, Jeff who helps to build a house. Once we become dependent on human scale institutions and real people and people we can maybe talk to on the phone or people we could even meet and see eye to eye, we actually start developing the structures that we evolved with, the information that we need to be empathetic, to have, a, a, we have to see the impact on people and on the natural world in order to, to treat everything with respect. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. I think it's something that you don't know you're missing until you until you regain it. I moved uh, a while back. I lived in a small city that was, and I and I was in the walkable downtown area, and I was able to go to the farmer's market, and I knew the bartenders, and I, I realized that, the, you know, I was missing this human connection. I, I liked knowing these people and, and knowing that um, if I needed something or if they needed something, we kind of had each other's backs. And um, that's something that when it's taken out of your life and you have this, sort of facade of comfort, um, or maybe it is real comfort, um, you're missing that interdependence, I think, in that community that is just so integral to, to our evolution. Yeah, I'm so glad that you've tasted that, but I also want to say that a lot of people have gone to smaller towns, you know, very often in promoting local, it's been very difficult because a lot of people have only experienced a small local town that's been marginalized for generations right. where people have been pulled into the city. Very often the young have left and very often those places can feel a bit dead. They can often be filled with people who, ha who have been marginalized for so long that they're not particularly open armed and not particularly attractive. They can be quite suspicious of outsiders and and there can be this feeling of sort of small-mindedness and this sort of closed-in feeling. So I just want to urge people, when they think of localism, look at the new local. I'm not, I also want to sing the praises of some of those older communities that once you get to know people, you might actually find that it's quite different. But I also find that with the new local, it's emerging actually very often where people have done exactly what you did. They tasted what life in the big city was like, and then they consciously chose to move to a smaller town where life was a bit more convivial, a bit more community-based, the pace was a bit slower. It takes time to know people. It takes time to be kind. It takes time to love and care. 
whether for animals or plants or other people. So what's happening is there's a new local of people who are often very cosmopolitan, who are consciously choosing to come together to create what they know will allow their children and themselves to thrive, not to fear getting old, not to be so fearful generally, because as you said, we know that we have each other's back. And we're seeing that in a lot of climate crises now too. Right here, a few months ago, we had terrible disastrous floods, the whole town basically destroyed. And what became very clear was that it was the local community that was best at the response, at supporting mm -hmm. one another. And yes, the government came in, the army came in, but usually too late and usually in very inappropriate ways. Those are beautiful moments in in modern human history. Those, uh, the aftermath of the, of those disasters. You know, it's awful to see, but then really something special happens in those places where people give up everything and just help. And, Absolutely. Um, that's really something. I, you know, I, I think you've answered just about everything I, I wanted to talk about. But I, I have to say, I'm I'm outdated here. I read your book that you published in 1991. I was born in '92. Since then. A whole lot has happened, and you've written a whole lot. You've done a whole lot. Um, and so I want to give you an opportunity to talk about any of your newer work or your work with Local Futures and um, things that you're working on right now, including your memoirs. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, these uh, unusual experiences opened my eyes, and I ended up, uh, I was already globalized from birth. I'm sort of Swedish, English, German, grew up in Sweden. Both my parents also grew up in Sweden, but I had family in all three countries. And then after I wrote Ancient Futures, and we made a film by the same title, Ancient Futures, the film and the book were translated into more than 40 languages. And we had all these messages from around the world. And again and again, people would say, the story of Ladakh is our story too. So mm -hmm. it really resonated. And then it led to all these connections and sort of international networking. And more and more it became clear that we're being fed a narrative about progress about how how about growth and progress we're being told that it's actually benefiting us when in actual fact as i say around the world the majority are actually getting poorer if you look at how much time you have to spend to just pay for your food to pay for your shelter we are becoming poorer the numbers are if you just look at the numbers alone it's completely misleading but but look at how fast people are running just to stay in place why? It's so crazy. Even the CEOs of the biggest companies fearful that in the next merger, and it's, this, is a, this is a path of mergers, everybody get big or, or die. Bigger, bigger farms, bigger cities, everything bigger and faster. So it became so clear that more than anything, what's needed is a vision, is a picture, is what I now call big picture activism, where in local futures and have for a long time produced books and some films. We've been holding conferences. We do workshops. We have a localization action guide. And we also launched what we call World Localization Day. I was going to ask and about that. Yeah. We decided to make that June 21st, because in the Northern Hemisphere, that's the time that people could be out celebrating nature and community together. And this now was the third year, and we had, um, you know, we were working with about 80 groups in 30 countries. And among other things, people put on local food feasts around the world to celebrate this local food movement. That, by the way, it shows that humanity, we could shrink our footprint and increase productivity if we supported small diversified farms with more people, more hands, more eyes, more hearts, looking after the soil picking the apples that are ripe and leaving the other ones on the tree, 
not doing what the machines do, which is to pick everything and then often destroy half the crop. We have unbelievable waste in the dominant system. So I keep coming back to the subject. So as you can see, our passion is <laughs> sharing an understanding of what's actually going on, which includes not just the problem with the dominant system, but the micro level initiatives that show us that we could move in a different direction and that it's beginning to happen from the bottom up. So World Localization Day next year, again, will be June 21st, but in September, we're also planning to have a big global gathering in the UK, in the city of Bristol, where a close member of our network, George Ferguson, who was the former mayor of Bristol, also helped to start the Bristol Pound there. And he's been also now active in the local food movement. We've got a thriving local food movement in Bristol, which we actually in Local Futures helped to launch and have helped to strengthen over the years. So um, I hope people might even be interested in coming to Bristol next September, but certainly World Localization Day programs are also online events where you can connect with things going on around the world. I hope people will uh, read my short, very clear book called Local is Our Future. I hope they'll also look at a, a new book now called Life After Progress. Hmm. Um, and maybe most of all, I'd love people to show our film, The Economics of Happiness, in their local community to encourage like-minded people to gather and then to set up smaller human-scale yeah. groups where, they were, where people will be able to, on a human scale, discuss with each other how they can change the I to a we and by changing the I to a we, come together to create meaningful projects that are both healing to the environment and personally and psychologically healing. And those suggestions of what they might do, we have lots in our localization action guide. But I also want to say that in a way, the most important action is the first step of reconnection to others to change the eye to we. And after that, the most important action is education as activism or big picture activism. So even in your local area, if you want to make meaningful change, set up a small group to then spread the word further so you build up much more momentum. Because in order to shape the new local food economy, in order to shape the new energy systems that we need, the new types of education that we need. We need the numbers. We need to build up the numbers. But there's a lot happening at the local level, and I think people will be very inspired. Once they hear this, this dichotomy between supporting a globalizing path versus a localizing path, and they start looking at what's happening in their own area, they might be very surprised at how many initiatives there are, and it hopefully will restore their faith in humanity and restore their joy in being alive and their appreciation of how much there is out there that's actually hopeful and healthy. Well, I love ending on a positive note. And uh, I actually used your your tools on your website to find some things near me, and I was surprised to find some. Just like you said, there there are people all over the all over the place doing this stuff. Um, people can go to localfutures.org. Org. Should have Yeah, lo lo <laughs> localfutures.org. Yes, please do. There's all sorts of helpful tools on there, including the guide that Helena talked about. Um, food is an easy place to start, but then it kind of shows you some other things you can do in terms of maybe banking locally or, you know, whatever, because ultimately all those actions might lead to uh, a little bit of incremental change. So I, I want to say especially that I really recommend the food uh, initiatives as the, the best place to start and the most important place to start. Imagine that you have more crisis in your community, be it COVID, be it blocked supply lines, be it um, climate emergencies. 
food is the thing that's going to be a number one issue very rapidly. We could manage with the shelter we have in emergencies people have. They've ended up sleeping in schools or whatever. And we could manage without money if we had the food we need. Most places still have relatively decentralized water supplies. Water is, of course, even more important. But um, the community building that localization encourages and the local food initiatives, which go hand in hand, are also healing a lot of trauma. There are projects working with prisoners, with addicts that show how amazingly healing it is when people come together in community and have a deeper exchange where they really can speak from the heart, but also when they engage with the practical, productive work of growing food, something that every person needs every day. And this vital activity has been, as I say, you know, turned into shadow work, turned into something very toxic and destructive. But what the local food movement shows is that it can be exactly the opposite. Beautiful. Not too hard to find either these days. Um, Thank you so much, Helena. I obviously really, really enjoyed your book uh, and look forward to reading more of your work and seeing all the things that you guys are up to over at Local Futures. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Glad to meet you. Likewise. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.